Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi everyone, Ross here. I am doing this Instagram live in reaction to news that emerged yesterday from the UK with the sports councils of the UK, there's four of them representing Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales and England, had commissioned an investigation or a report into the issue of transgender athletes in sport. They then took that report and produced a set of guidelines which were released yesterday. I'm sure many of you have read those guidelines and are well aware of what they say. They, they go a long way towards confirming what has been discussed over the last 18 to 24 months. I'm quite relieved to say that they confirm also what World Rugby concluded. And I just wanted to share this video with you very briefly to share some thoughts more about what happens next. Because I'll be honest with you, I, I, don't, um, I don't feel like there's actually that much more to say about the issue. I think when we talk about the science, the retained advantage, the fact that you can't balance fairness, safety and inclusion, that you therefore have to you pick which one of those you prioritize. And if you go for inclusion, you do so at the expense of safety. If you go for safety and fairness, then you do so at the expense of inclusion. We've discussed all this stuff. We don't need, I think, to go over it again. But what the document did yesterday is put into writing as a result of an extremely comprehensive process, the same concepts. And I think that that's very meaningful. And it may well mean that the, what's it, 30th of September goes down as a significant day in this discussion about trans athletes in sport. Because for the first time, a multi-sport body, though they don't necessarily have executive control over those sports, have issued a statement that will change the conversation. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that now. If you hear hammering in the background, by the way, it's because I'm sitting here at home and my next door neighbors are doing some renovations and I'm not gonna go and tell them to stop while I do my monologue. So very quickly, I just, the, there's a couple of things I wanted to share with you. There's a summary document which Sports Council UK has released and it contains within it 10 guiding principles. I wanna go through some of what I think with my biased lens as a scientist are the more important ones there. And then there's, a, there's an accompanying document in which they describe the survey process. And within that document is what I think is perhaps one of the most important revelations. Also not new. Those of you who've been following this will understand and will have heard it before. But I wanted to bring it up again. And then I want to end with some reaction because we've seen some sports in the UK come out and say that they welcome the directive. We've seen other sports come out and say that they're going to proceed as they did before. So effectively, they reject the, the, the guidelines. And I want to talk about that and some of the other reaction. But let's start on the principles. There are 10 of them in total. I'm going to pick the ones that I'm biased towards as a scientist. The, the first one is that all the sports councils are committed to the inclusion of transgender sport in sport and physical activity. Now, that is, I think, most people's default start point. They want there to be a degree of inclusion. They are 
decent and willing to accept that people may identify as they wish and they want to find ways to be inclusive and when you when you read the um the, the accompanying document called an appendix where they discuss a little bit about the 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 survey and the interview process they interviewed over 300 people by the way representing 175 i think was the number of organizations in disclosure i was one of those those people one of the 300 um but but they interviewed athletes coaches wada representatives federation officials um and so on trans groups i think most people start with a position of fairness and they say how can we achieve fairness now when i look at a policy like this it makes me go back to february 2020 which is when World Rugby produced its transgender policy, and we had the same mindset. We went into that meeting saying, can we de-escalate this increasingly polarized issue? You know, every time there's a discussion, it feels like the people get further and further apart. Is there a way to bring them together? Is there a way to achieve some degree of fairness, some degree of inclusion, some degree of safety? Um, and, and I think that that's an important thing to bear in mind because whenever you speak to people and you know that that's their, that's their decent desire, it will influence what they say. And so that's why it's so important to go beyond that first level and ask questions about science and objectivity and take the emotion out of it. The second thing is really one of the key statements. It says categorization within the sex bin uh, binary is and remains the most useful functional division relative to sports performance. So what they've done there is not rocket science. They've looked at men and women's performances and they recognize that they are so different. They're, they're, by scale, it is a much larger difference than what height makes in basketball, what big feet and long arms, which is ridiculous, makes in swimming, what fast twitch versus slow twitch, type two, uh, 2B versus 2A makes in sprinting. All these daft, and really I'm tired of these, these false equivalences, between having long arms and, and being male. <laughs> Those things are not the same by scale, and that's what this point is saying. So well done to Carb Mill Consulting and Sports Councils for putting that in there. The third thing is evidence indicates it is fair and safe for transgender people to be included within the male category in most sports. So what that's saying effectively is that the male category is the open category where it is safe and you can go up into that category but by implication you then draw a line and you say well you can't come down that's that's what this is doing so fundamentally what that's doing is saying that this is a trans woman issue not a trans man issue which i think most people understand it's why that side of the debate is often neglected number four this is key maybe the crux of it competitive fairness cannot be reconciled with self-identification into the female category in gender-affected sport. Only thing I change there is sex-affected sport. It's not about gender, it's about sex, right, as you know. So what they're saying here is that fairness and self-ID don't work. Um, if, you, if you allow people to identify within, then the fairness issue is gone. Number five, now moving beyond self-ID, based upon current evidence, testosterone suppression is unlikely to guarantee fairness between transgender women and natal females in gender-affected, sex-affected sports. That is the fundamental point that emerged within the first two hours of the World Rugby meeting. Very quickly, what we did was create kind of like a court case setup where 
uh, we had opposing experts on both sides of the divide. So we had legal experts for inclusion and against inclusion. We had scientific experts arguing for and against, uh, ethical um, experts, advocates, medical doctors. And basically we said, you thrash it out. You convince us. We'll be, in effect, the, the five or six, this was the World Rugby panel, five or six judges, as it were, and you convince us. Argue amongst yourselves and present your case. And instantly it is apparent that there is a large body of evidence that shows that suppressing testosterone, as the current policy requires, does not remove the biological differences that create the performance differences that males have over natal females. That was so obvious within the first hour. The, the evidence on the one side is so weak, the evidence on the other side is strong. Not perfect, but strong. And so this statement, based upon current evidence, is absolutely correct. There is no way that you can guarantee fairness or safety if you allow transgender women into women's sports. Number six, and this is really important again in the context of rugby, case-by-case -case assessment is unlikely to be practical, uh, practical nor verifiable for entry into gender-affected sports. When we released our guidelines, we had to do guidelines. I'll, I'll touch on that again in a moment. And what that meant was that each of our member federations was able to apply the guidelines or not. And many didn't instead, and instead said that what they would do is apply these case-by-case -case assessments. And what this is saying is that that's not practical. Now, we knew that that might happen. We, we understood that the member federations might go that way because they prioritize inclusion. And they think that they can achieve fairness on a case-by-case -case basis. And you can't. And we... We had a document that accompanied our guidelines of frequently asked questions, and there were two pages dedicated to explaining why case-by-case -case assessment doesn't work, and still some of the member unions have gone with it. And so this was very interesting to me to see this being stated, and there are four bullet points about why case-by-case -case won't work, which I think is interesting. So it'll be interesting to see how they react to that now. And then the seventh one, and I think I'm going to probably leave it here, because th these, this is where the science legal part ends. This is vital. Categorization by sex is lawful, and hence the requirement to request information relating to birth sex is appropriate. That is key. One of the arguments that has been put forward so often has been that it is not lawful to discriminate on the basis of gender in sport. What they are saying here is that categorization by sex is lawful. And we also recognized that. But the, the problem or the challenge for world rugby was that we govern the sport, that, well, they, let me say they, I'm a consultant. They govern the sport locally. And so different member unions in different parts of the world have different constitutions and different legal frameworks. And so when you say categorization by sex is lawful, that was the case in Ireland and the UK. It might not be the case all around the world. So we at World Rugby were somewhat constrained in our ability to issue it as a solid directive. That's a little bit less true here, but I think the Sports Council still didn't go with the directive, maybe feeling that it's not their place to tell the sports how to assess the degree to which their gender affected or not. Because that brings me on to the next thing, which is the way forward. And what the what the initial carb mill consulting group and now sports council have done is develop 
what's really a, a question-answer framework. What, what are the considerations that you need to take into account in order to assess what you do next? And so the first one, is your sport gender affected and how does that manifest? Now, most sports are impacted by physical differences between males and females, some less so than others. And so that's the first question. Does your sport reward strength, stamina, and physiques? And so all these sorts of questions need to be asked. And then based upon a process of question, consideration, and answer, there's a, there's a hierarchy of contact. So for instance, at the top level would be combat sports, for example, boxing, taekwondo, judo, and karate. I'd add kickboxing for reasons that we will discover shortly. And then at the lowest are the sports that compete in parallel. So for instance, track sprinting, uh, swimming, um, skateboarding, downhill skiing, dressage, gymnastics, darts, rowing, where there's no safety issue at all. And between those, obviously, there's a spectrum. Rugby is there as a collision sport near the top end of it, whereas others like netball, basketball are contact sports that are a little bit less maybe safety injury prone. So that, that's a key consideration regarding one of those imperatives, which was safety. But where they then end up is that a, a set of three available options, one of which is you prioritize gender inclusion. Now, I think that one of the most significant things that this um, policy document does, aside from affirming what most people with any scientific biological understanding and, and some would even argue common sense have said, is that there are clearly differences between male and females. They can't be undone, and so therefore you can't balance fairness, safety, and inclusion. There is an option, though, that sport may want to do that, and so it's not inconceivable that sport will decide to, uh, to prioritize gender inclusion. If so, fine, do so, but at least now it's on the table that you're doing it at the expense of fairness and potentially safety. Now we know. There's no more tap dancing. There's no more deceit. There's no more subtle language around we're prioritizing balance. Uh, there's no more uh, hedging bets and saying we're achieving everything and compromising and keeping everyone happy. You're not, but at least now we know that. Happy days. Let's go on. I, I hope that they don't do that. Some might. Some have already said they'll do that. But now we know. It's transparent. The middle option then is a female and open category where effectively you say that there, is a, there remains a closed category into which uh, entry is allowed only if your birth sex is female. And now, obviously, people will start asking about DSDs and, and how that's determined and some of those complexities. That's a separate issue. Let's park that for another discussion at another time. But what this is saying effectively is that women's sport remains closed to biological females. And then there is an open category into which anyone else can compete. And that is where then trans women would compete because they are, by virtue of not having the androgens, excluded from the female category. That, by the way, is a solution that World Rugby proposed to its stakeholders, including the trans advocacy groups that we consulted with and IGR, International Gay Rugby, and they rejected it outright. They said that it's just a name change and that it's a semantic issue that still aims to exclude and discriminate. So that's why it wasn't done. But that is, in my opinion, that is really the solution. You have open sport, and then you have a closed category, necessary closed category for females. And then the third one is you create additional ver versions which have universal admission. So that's where everyone can compete. Now, that would be possible, for instance, playing non-contact rugby in non-competitive 
well, they're still competitive, but you know what I mean, environments. It means having open uh, races, running, swimming, cycling, additional versions where maybe you accept there's a degree of advantage and you accept the mixing of the sexes and you facilitate participation, inclusion, and potentially competition. There's probably ways to do that. We also explored that, by the way, in our discussions with, with groups. That was also rejected. Um, but it might. It, I can foresee that in the next four to five years, the way that the conversation here has changed, that that might become something that is done more often. So that's, that's really what they landed up with. Now... The, the other thing that I think was particularly interesting and, and striking, concerning actually, is in the accompanying document, which describes the survey, they, they talk about the feedback they got, awareness and knowledge, opinions around the current policy, whether it's fair, whether it can be fair, whether inclusion should be prioritized despite unfairness and safety issues. It's a very interesting read, but there's a section in the interview and survey outcomes numbered six, which is titled Frustration, Animosity and Emotion. And I think this is the key issue for me now moving forward. I want to read to you from that, so forgive me for looking away and reading there. It says here, the level of frustration, animosity and emotionality was high in many of the interviews. There was a lot of swearing, shouting, crying and anxiety displayed during interviews. So that's, I mean, we know this is a very polarizing emotive issue. A significant number of interviewees said that they would only be involved if anonymity was assured because people were afraid to say in public what they privately believed. The overwhelming majority of people who considered fairness and safety could not be achieved with transgender inclusion did not feel confident to voice these opinions. So in other words, if you believed what the science and the biology support is the case, you are afraid to say so you don't have confidence to voice these opinions because of the repercussions, such as what? Some said, and I'm reading again, that they had been threatened with sanction or disciplinary action if they spoke out. Many of the interviewees who held positions with sporting agencies said their personal opinions were in direct conflict with that of their employer or agency's stated position. Many felt they had no option but to remain silent in order to keep their job. This was a frequently voiced frustration which regularly reduced the interviewee to tears or hostility. Now, when you read that and you also read sports organizations saying that they've spoken to women, I hope that your radar starts beeping aggressively to warn you that you cannot simply ask people for their opinion if you don't also protect them from the consequences of their opinions in this matter. This is such a polarized, divisive, emotive matter that people literally feel threatened. Their safety, their security in their jobs, their salaries are under threat if they state an opinion that is backed by science. That's where we are. It's crazy. And that's why, even though this policy doesn't quite go so far as to say you cannot have meaningful and fair competition, and it, it sort of does still give sports these options, and some of those sports have taken what I believe to be the wrong option. You really have to commend people for doing this. You're going to say, that's nuts. Why should you commend people for doing what's scientifically valid, robust, and right? That, I suppose, is a matter of um, opinion or insight. 
But that's where we are. When World Rugby published the guidelines, they got absolutely hammered by groups who labeled them for, as, as discriminatory, going on a witch hunt, transphobic is the easiest word to throw out in this discussion. People are genuinely scared. And when companies and organizations, federations come out and say things like this document does, and, and I'm biased, obviously, but um, when, when the World Rugby leadership, this is the executive, not me. I mean, I was just part of the team that put the process together and developed the guidelines. But when the leadership said, we trust that that's the right thing to do, even though it's unpopular, that's courage. And what I want to end this, this, well, this section of this video, I know I've been going on a bit long, is to say now to, to women that this report and the world rugby position, I don't want to use the word permit you to speak because that sounds patronizing and, and paternalistic and it's not, it's not that. But, but before, whatever your fears were, just know that now, there are so many people who support you, so don't hold back. Don't be afraid anymore. The, this document effectively opens up a new line of conversation where you should no longer be afraid to express a view that is actually scientifically valid. And I hope that that is the most significant contribution that this document makes, is it allows people to say the things that otherwise reduce them to tears and hostility because of the fear. That's really important. Now, final point, what happens next? The new transgender guidelines, this is an article now from Sean Engel, who, as always, is on top of this, have been broadly welcomed by a number of sports and women's organizations, including an organization called Women in Sport. However, not surprisingly, they've also faced criticism from LGBT plus groups such as Pride Sports and Stonewall. One of the, so, so who, who's welcomed it? British Triathlon welcomed the, the, the guidance yesterday. Uh, said that they would now take time to digest the work and work out how it can be utilized. Don't know what they'll do, but they welcomed it. UK Athletics and the Rugby Football League said they welcomed the guidance. The Rugby Football League one is interesting because English Rugby Union, the RFU, have chosen to go instead with a man uh, with a case by case approach. So it's interesting that um, that they've welcomed it. Whether that welcoming it means they're going to implement it as the open versus female, or whether they're going to try and <laughs> hedge it as a case-by-case case remains also to be seen. Um, then, then Women in Sport is a charity which up to now hadn't really spoken, but I think have issued an important statement which, um, which basically encourages people to have an open debate. It says that debate on women's inclusion, transgender women's inclusion in sport has not always been based on science. It has often excluded women, and on occasion it has been far from respectful. And so now I think that that conversation has changed. And then, of course, you get the same accusations. When, when World Rugby did it again, it was, it, it was said to be biased and a witch hunt and, and uh, transphobic. And the same things have happened now. They say, for instance, the following. We also believe that the new guidance presents a false dichotomy of inclusion and fairness and forces NGBs to make a choice between the two. Now, if you believe that... If you believe that there is a false dichotomy between inclusion and fairness, then tell us how to solve it. Tell us why it's false. Don't just say it. These are just meaningless words. If, if it was a false dichotomy and you could actually achieve inclusion and fairness at the same time, then tell us how. 
Because most people want that, I think. I really do believe that. Most people would be happy and would accept that. So, so having, having gone through hundreds of scientific studies and the dozen, more than a dozen, that have looked at how lowering testosterone affects um, biology, you can't, you can't find inclusion and fairness being reconciled. So, so what does this even mean? Then the director of communications of Stonewall, who also condemned the report, said, it is extremely harmful for this guidance to suggest that there is an inherent conflict between inclusion, fairness, and safety, when in reality the three go hand in hand. How do they go hand in hand? What, what are we missing? What are, what are the scientists in the room missing when we think that you have to prioritize because you can't guarantee fairness, safety, and inclusion? What are we missing? Tell us. This is, this is entirely unconstructive feedback. Not surprising, but it does nothing to advance the debate in the way that we should be trying to advance this discussion. So I don't know what happens next, but again, it doesn't seem as though these groups will find any common ground. They are getting further and further apart. It's like the big bang of <laughs> opinion. We're just accelerating further and further away from one another. But what we do have now, and, and this is the thing I'll close on, is we now have a document that confirms that it's lawful. We also have a document that confirms that it's unlikely, and certainly at this point based on evidence, that you can assure people that safety and fairness can be ensured as a consequence of the current policy. Kickboxing, ironically, a combat sport, which would be at the furthest end of that extreme, have come out and said that they will continue to be inclusive and fair. Well, you can't be, guys. That's the problem. You cannot be. And so now, when these sports say that, and they say they're going to prioritize inclusion, at least we all know what they really value. And it's not the fairness, integrity, and safety of women in sport. That's for sure. So go ahead and prioritize inclusion against legal advice and against the advice of biological, sports injury, and scientific experts who've warned you against injury. I hope that that risk never manifests, but if it does can't say you weren't warned. And the rest of us can now see that. And so now what it takes finally is strong leadership. This was strong leadership by UK Sport and the sports councils to commission Carbmill Consulting, who by the way have produced an outstanding set of documents. If you've got a lot of time and you want to understand this issue in depth, this is the only place you need to go to. Read all their documents. Absolutely brilliant. That was strong leadership. World Rugby, the executive, showed strong leadership. The question is, is anyone else going to show strong leadership? In the meantime, I hope that the loudness or the amplitude, the volume of the women's voices on this increases as a consequence so that if this is done in a few years' time, people don't have to say that they're scared of losing their jobs and being threatened with salary reductions or even worse because they express something that's scientifically valid. Anyway, next steps, I suppose, are going to be taken by the federations and maybe the IOC, who would have seen this document knowing that they were actually doing something similar. They were working on a framework and a guidance document that could do a lot worse than just <laughs> copy-paste what Carbmill Consulting and the Sports Councils have done, because this is definitely a leap ahead. Anyway, thanks for watching. Sorry for going on so long. That's my Instagram Live for the day. And I'm sure that we will talk about something similar to this again in the future. Ciao for now. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 